If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass, and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone, it's Garden of Doom, and we are revisiting with our good friend Reverend Jim Willis, who, uh, I, you know, this, we're recording this on uh, August 27, 2023, and just, uh, just yesterday, in real time, I dropped the, the last show we did, which was by dropping, I mean published, uh, the show on American cults. I listened back to it yesterday. It was a great show, so certainly check that out. And there's uh, and Reverend Willis has been on a, on our show several times. Uh, so you should check out all the shows, uh, starting with uh, Censoring God, which was uh, the first book I became aware of him with. And uh, he's come back kind enough multiple times, and today we're going to be talking about some of the legends of the uh, First Peoples, the uh, First Nations of North America, primarily, um, if not exclusively. And uh, I'm sure I will be publishing either a week before or a week after a show I just did with uh, Evan and Stephen Strong from Australia on some of the similar uh, topics for the what they call the original people, what you and I probably know as the Australian Aborigines. Uh, now that show gets a little bit fantastical in some areas, and you know, and and 
you know, perhaps you believe it, perhaps you don't believe it all, and, and that's fine. That's cool. And that this show is not about trying to preach to you on what you need to believe or not to believe, just to provide you with information and perspectives, and 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 you can decide. But very interesting on the First Nations or the original stories there, uh, despite you know what you might think of uh, you know s- some of the archaeology and other uh, things that were were discussed there. And, and hopefully we'll have the Strongs back on to focus in on some things. But without further ado, I want to welcome in Reverend Jim Willis again. It's like, you're, I feel like I know you so well that I almost take you for granted here. And I, and, I, and I go prattle on and on for two minutes without even saying, hello. Hi, Jim. <laughs> Hi, Jeff. Good to be with you again. Yeah. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm trying to survive the hot South Carolina weather. What a summer it's been. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Walk outside, it's like walking into a wet blanket. Oh, man. Yeah. But in here, it's air conditioning. I've got the fan going. I hope you can't hear it. I can, but that's okay. I'm, it, it, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with the with the fan. It, it, it gives it a, a a tropical feel, like you know, I'm, like I'm talking to someone that's in the you know in the deep dark jungle or something. And and you actually are in in the in the forest. So yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I came out here oh twenty thirteen, maybe before that. I I forgot now twenty eleven. And uh, I came out here for that specific reason, to kind of get out away from civilization. And uh, I did that. Yeah. yeah <laughs> out but, here in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, so your you're, you're permanent walkabout, basically. Uh, <laughs> your little vision quest. So, that, that, so yeah, it's great. So, uh, you know, uh, sometimes there are like little internet lags and things like that that we, we have. And, that, and yes, Reverend Jim is in the continental United States, but he is uh, purposefully sort of away from major civilization. So... Uh, and but our luck is holding out pretty well. So what we're going to talk about, if I haven't said it already, I think that we have, is going to be some of the uh, uh, mythos and legends, lore, origin stories of the First Nations, which we're not going to be able to do it possible justice because that's hundreds of different tribes or cultures and, you know, many, many different regions, um, you know, and, and, you know, but... Uh, yeah, I'm sure that Jim will give us a good sort of survey of some major ones, some of the more famous ones, maybe some of the larger uh, peoples and, you know, or maybe some amalgams. Who, who knows? But if there's anyone that can do it, we have the right person here. So, Reverend Jim, I'm going to turn the show over to you. And hopefully this will be one of those shows where I talk very little. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated. Living where I do, uh, I'm right near what used to be the Savannah River. Uh, now it's a, some of the biggest man-made lakes this side of the Mississippi. Um, but uh, Hernando de Soto uh, crossed the river just south of where I am and headed up into South Carolina and then North Carolina and then west as far as the Mississippi River. And when de Soto came over here, one of the things that his chroniclers say in their journals they were amazed to find not a simply a, a simple indigenous people, but tribe after tribe. They said kingdom after kingdom, uh, all different. Uh, some were matriarchal, some were patriarchal. Uh, and uh, DeSoto kept looking for gold. That was his big thing. Right. And he came with a totally different mindset. There was a, a great uh, clash of spirituality that the people simply couldn't understand each other. And uh, that's not, you know, to, to say that there was a Native American 
in spirituality. There are thousands, as you just said. But on the other hand, uh, when you stop to think about the uh, European culture that invaded this continent, and I use the term invaded on purpose because that's exactly what they did, uh, there was a huge difference even in the spirituality of the Europeans who came over here. When you consider, for instance, the uh, Spanish conquistadors and the Irish Catholics that came into New York and up in New England, um, they were both Catholic, you know, but there was a huge difference between the conquistadors and the, the, the Catholicism of the conquistadors and the Catholicism of Irish Catholics. Uh, you think about Scottish Presbyterians were totally different than the Lutherans who came over, or the uh, the Huguenots, or or the, the Lutheran or the people who who uh, settled in the Appalachians. So there wasn't a a white European spirituality. It was many different kinds, but they did have this in common. Um, they all had in common the idea of a God who is other. And um, they had the idea that somehow, it, it, you know, God was telling them it was their manifest destiny to take over this country. And that they were the good guys. And that they were to eliminate the heathens who were here and spread them. The manifest destiny was to spread from coast to coast to take over them. And they did it. Mm -hmm. And along with that came a, uh, a kind of an ecological spirituality. They, they felt that somehow God had given them uh, a nature just to simply act as a natural resource to take care of. And so they weren't of the land as much as they were on the land. Um, and there were some other similarities we could say. So even though they were represented totally different um, spirituality, so, so different religions, there was that natural idea that somehow God had appointed them they were here to take over and that the earth was to provide for them. Well, you could say the same thing about differences in Native American spirituality, right? hugely different. The, the Navajo were totally different than the uh, Apache, for instance, or the Chippewa, or the Shawnee, or the Cherokee. And yet, there was a basic kind of uh, a spirituality underneath all of them as well, in that they saw the earth not as a resource, but as their mother. Uh, almost all of them had the idea of living on the land. And of course, you know, there were, you, just as you can't say that uh, everybody from Europe believed a common thing, you can't say all Indians believed a common thing. But on the other hand, the, the, the Indians had no idea of ownership of land, for instance. Uh, when, when they were brought into a treaty and given a bunch of high-tech presents, like everything from uh, you know, blankets to cooking ware and to G-jaws and stuff like that. And, and they were told, that, you know, put your mark here. And, and they had no idea that, that the Europeans thought that what they were doing was turning over the land to Europeans, right. to the, the indigenous people who lived here. They didn't own any land. Like Talking about who owns the land is like two fleas arguing who owns the dog they're on, you know, that kind of thing. And so there was that clash, and I think that clash stayed with people right, right through to the very end, until Manifest Destiny took its place, and we had destroyed an entire culture and race of people that had been here for thousands upon thousands of years. And so that basic difference between the European sensibilities, 
call it that, rhythm is necessarily spiritual, but between the European sensibilities and the native sensibilities, I, I think that marked the whole the whole problem. And to be honest, um, I think the Europeans were wrong, and to know that, all you have to do is go outside today, <laughs> look at the environment today, look what we've done to it. We have just totally demolished and totally ruined it. Look at a modern city and just feel the tension and feel the, oh, they call it the beat of the city. To me, it, 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 it's a, a, a drumbeat of, of doom. It's so loud and so noisy and so... Smell it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, all of that. And I think that affects the way we feel. I think that, uh, to a certain extent, um, explains what's happening around in, in the ecology of the world today. Our comfort right now is more important to us than the long-range comfort of our children, for instance. Um, the Indians had the idea that uh, the Earth is forever. The Earth is our mother. Uh, the Earth... I'm not saying that Indians didn't have, you know, they were all, you know, ecologists and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the Indians of the, of the West stampeded whole buffalo herds off a cliff just because they wanted to get the meat from a few of them, you know, uh, or they used fire uh, here in, in South Carolina, for instance, when the first uh, people came down into South Carolina and settled here, they thought there were all these natural fields animals. I mean, there were there were buffalo here in South Carolina. And, uh, uh, there were all these great huge, huge meadows, and they thought that was natural. As a matter of fact, that's where the Savannah River got its name, Savannah. Um, and, but the natural meadows weren't even real. I mean, they, they had been, uh, the Indians had used fire to uh, clean out the underbrush and everything else for generations upon generations, maybe thousands of years. And uh, that, that kind of thing. So when the Europeans came over here and thought they were living in virgin wilderness, that's, that's crazy. They weren't. The Indians were using technology, too. But it wasn't as prevalent as the iron tools and that idea of um, conquering all and you wiping everything out so you can grow cotton or tobacco, which is both our crops are extremely difficult in this area. Well, sure. I mean, tear up the soil. Yeah, I mean, we can't pretend that the... the uh, the different tribes didn't compete with each other for resources yeah, as well. And, and, you know, I mean, while they may have respected the spirit of the buffalo more than we say respect the spirit of a uh, cow that we eat for the burger, they still killed the buffalo just the oh, same. Yeah. I mean, it's, but it was, there was more, I mean, first of all, there's less people, but there, there was, there was some more idea towards sustained that you had to live in some sort of balance or you wouldn't live at all you had the yeah. land had to thrive for you to live thrive because you were counting on things growing and you needed the herds to come in predictable migrations and 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 you know and you and you used more parts of the animal for more practical things which you know you you, you you know, one could analyze that as more romantic or less romantic if you want to. Uh, and we, we, we go through phases with our own culture where we overly romanticize things. And, and, but they were definitely, they were definitely better stewards of the land, whether that's because they had a better soul or, you know, it was tradition or just it was more practical. I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it and it, it probably doesn't matter, but yeah, they're, they're you know, uh, we, we've done a lot of environmental raising, as in R A Z, not uh, 
R-A-I-S, uh, of, of land in a very short period of time. Um, and, uh, that, you know, and, and again, I think it's sort of that there's, there is that religious element to it that it, it shifted to the, the, you know, the, the brown and black people are natural resources to us to the world itself is the natural resource that was provided to us by God for, you know, what, whatever purpose. And there is a, there is a bit of the, that manifest as a, that's, that's an entirely different show though. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, you know, it's, we, we have to, you're absolutely right. We have to avoid by any means stretching imagination, this idea of the noble savage, uh, you know, it, never really existed and, and we, have, we have to be careful to stay away from that mythology. On the other hand, there was something about the Native American lifestyle could provide only for a certain amount of people. So nature took its course and when the people harvested the resources of a particular area, they were able to move and wait for the area that they had left to regenerate itself. And that's something the Europeans couldn't do. Uh, from the very beginning, I find it uh, really interesting to go back to the very uh, the third, fourth chapter of the, the, the Bible to read about uh, Adam and Eve, our mythological ancestors, and they had two sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain was the first murderer, and the uh, first thing he did after he committed his murder of his brother was to go out and build a city. Right. And that is uh, something that is, is not uncommon in all Indian cultures. I mean, the Anasazi, the Navajo, uh, certainly built cities. Um, Chaco Canyon may have been the biggest uh, the biggest city in, in the United States until uh, New York finally caught up in, what, 18-something or other like that. So they certainly built cities. But on the other hand, um, there was a tendency to move on. And there was also a tendency for traditionalism. I live in a, a fascinating area between South Carolina Georgia. And right down between me and Augusta, there is an island that is had a tremendous amount of Native American artifacts that were mined there, a lot illegally, so they ruined a lot of archaeology there. But uh, there was a, a, a group of people who's, who said they had come in from the west, probably crossed the Mississippi and migrated here. And they had certain customs. Uh, for instance, they were a, uh, a matriarchal organization women were pretty much led the tribes and they, they encountered when they came here uh, we'll, we'll, we'll call them the people of the of the river they met here another people we don't know their names so we'll call them the people of the hills who were more migratory and had been here for generations before them and they had totally different customs and yet the archaeology seems to say that these two people the peoples of the river and the people of the of the mountains of the woods they lived together for about a thousand years and didn't mix their cultures. It was kind of like a Romeo and Juliet kind of thing. You mm -hmm. know? And they didn't mix their cultures until finally uh, they went the way all cultures did. People of the river loaded up their canoes one day, nobody knows why, and sailed south uh, down the Savannah River toward the sea. People of the hills just kind of gradually went away. We found... Uh, Arrowheads, for instance, Savannah River dark points that were uh, chipped and carved. We found it right out here on our property that were carved by these people of the hills who used to come down here and, and hunt around here. And we found this perfect, perfect uh, Savannah River dark point, which uh, was obviously made uh, from uh, rock that came from up in 
northern uh, uh, North Carolina rather than South Carolina. It was an imported rock, which means trade and everything else. And the last person to use it probably killed an animal right here or, or threw a spear and missed <laughs> or something. And there it sat right there until we planted a rose bush in there. It was two feet down when we, when we dug it up. But these two cultures, uh, we could call them both Native Americans, and yet they lived right side by side to each other. And didn't mix at all to speak of. I'm sure they, there must have been some, you know, young people being what they are, I'm sure there was some. Frolicking. Oh, don't run off with a hill person. Your mother and I would be scandalized, you know, that kind of thing. I'm sure that happened. But mm -hmm. uh, basically the cultures just remained totally separate because there was such a sense of tradition. They, they cooked their food different. One of them used um, uh, soapstone to, uh, uh, you know, heat it in the fire and then put it in water. And uh, get the water boiling that way. The other used clay pots. Matter of fact, there's a good good indication that uh, pottery uh, was uh, invented in this part of the country, right down here near Augusta, where I live. Uh, and, and all these kinds of different different ways of, of dealing with it. They lived side by side for all of this time before they went their separate ways. Now that has to imply some kind of cultures some kind of a religion some kind of a spirituality because there are no other forces i don't think that are uh, that strong that can keep those kind of cultures going i know the israelis uh, the early jews did it in in israel where the jews and the canaanites lived side by side for hundreds and hundreds of years and not thousands without mixing cultures but it was part of their religious belief abraham uh, it came with the Abrahamic religions, you know, don't, don't mix, you know, Jews, don't mix with Gentiles, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And that kind of thing still goes on today in a lot of Jewish circles who don't want their kids to mess around with Gentiles and vice versa. So I think religion and spirituality play a great part in this, but it doesn't explain everything, but I think it explains a lot and, and what keeps people separate, their traditions, their stories, and all these kind of different stories. I'm sure that there are, and, the, and it's a rich tapestry, so I have heard and hit bits and pieces of. By the way, a little side note, uh, having caused a minor, short-term little scandal as a teenager, um, I can tell you that the Orthodox Jews aren't too thrilled when their offspring fraternize with the Reform, uh, less religious Jews as well, and sometimes they'll come to the place of work and you know, insist on someone being fired. Um. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a great story that uh, I was involved in. We've talked about this before. I do, you know, quite a bit of uh, energy dowsing. And uh, I had a neighbor of mine come over and uh, say, something happened last night and you need, you need to look into it. And I said, well, what's that? Well, she said, my, my, uh, my son and daughter-in-law showed up last night with their kid and they said we have to stay in your place and we can't stay in our house and i said well, what happened what can i do well she said there was so much supernatural stuff going on in the house and it was things were banging around and, and scaring the kids and we were petrified we, we didn't know what to do so we, we left so she said can you come over and take a look at it i said oh sure be glad to so she brought over uh, I had a piece of paper and I said, you know, outline the house for me, draw a picture of it so I can see it. So she did and I kind of doused it and got some strange 
uh, things with the, uh, with the with the pendulum. I said, yeah, let's let's go over there. So the next day, we went over to the house, and I carefully, with my dowsing rod, dowsing around the outside of the house, and I found it. it the house existed right where two strong energy lines crossed. And uh, so I went inside, and to make a long story short, this is we're not talking about dowsing here, but to make a long story short, what I discovered were two um, spirits there, very happy, happy spirits. And uh, they didn't want to leave. I didn't want to be, you know, use the bell book and candle and be an exorcist and be gone spirits and all this kind of stuff. But I, I said, I wonder what's going on here. And it turns out that this house um, was the place where uh, just after, back in the days of Jim Crow uh, laws here in South Carolina, which were pretty severe, uh, there was a woman lived here who had a relationship with a black man. And uh, you, you just didn't do that back then in South Carolina. Uh, two different cultures, two different religions, well, not, not necessarily different religions, but different spiritualities. And she had a sexual relationship with this black man, and the people were incensed. And one night a drunken mod shows up, takes the right, uh, black man out, lynches him. And uh, she spent the rest of her life in that house by herself. She would not marry anybody else. And she was kind of considered the town eccentric and all that kind of stuff. And eventually she died. And as near as I can tell out from my dowsing of the spirits that were there, what had happened was um, they were reunited on this place of very powerful earth energies where two ley lines crossed or two energy lines crossed. And they were very happy because for the first time they could be together in death, if not in life. And uh, so I didn't, I didn't know quite what to do. I said, well, stay here and be happy. I'm not going to try to drive you out or anything like that. As long as you're happy, just, you know, take it easy and don't mess up the furniture too much. <laughs> so are we insinuating here that, that what the, what caused the poltergeist was actually the happy reunion and they got a little excited do ghost bumping it's, it's, nasty. It sounds, it sounds terribly simplistic to say it that way, but, yeah, and uh, well, good for those kids. <laughs> uh, my, my neighbor's uh, uh, son and, and daughter-in-law went back to the house. They knew what was going on. They knew there was no problem. And every once in a while, they report they'll hear something strange or see something strange happening or feel something strange. And uh, but they're not worried anymore. It's just their roommates dancing. That's all. Yeah. What can you say? That's all. <laughs> no, no problem. And so there's so cultures. Cultures can mix, and these two mixed very happily as individuals. But, of course, the culture that they were living in wouldn't accept it. And I'm sure it was that same way. You know, they went to lynch the, the black guy, for heaven's sake. Um, I, I'm sure it's the same way when, when white culture and when Euro European culture, rather, and Indian cultures got together. I'm certain there were some nice relationships formed individually, but the cultures were just to totally against each other. And as a result, this country comes along, and the Europeans were so strong, and their technology was so advanced, that we built this great country and fulfilled manifest destiny from sea to signing sea. But we did it by uh, enslaving one race and pretty much eliminating another one. And it, it's, um, it, it doesn't say much for European culture. I mean, I love my country, but I'm not really proud of a lot of the things we have done. That's for sure. And the same thing happened in, you mentioned Australia earlier. Same thing happened when um, the British took over uh, Australia. I mean, look at the terrible things that were done there uh, to the indigenous people of Australia. Uh, and, and they accused the Australians, for instance, the Aborigines of being uh, um, old 
lazy and primitive and everything else. And they just didn't understand the tremendous deep spirituality of uh, Australian Aborigines. Um, I, I think, quite frankly, we can learn a lot from that culture when things build up and get too much. I've learned personally, sometimes you just have to go out and walk about, you know. The, the uh, Aborigines understood it. Put everything aside. You know. Oh, but I have all these obligations. Well, forget the obligations. In the long run, put it aside. Get out. Go walk about. Get your head in, in, in the right place. Um, and we have so much to learn from these cultures that we have basically dominated and in some cases eliminated. This is true. Uh, and there's lots of books and, and things like that on, on the subjects. And uh, um, I'm sure there's people that, uh, you know, that there's resources out there to learn about that. And there's outreach centers and yeah, just maybe try and go to a, a reservation, but make sure you, you know, Check into it first to make sure you go when and where you're welcome, and and you know go to one of the outreach centers. Yeah, it's it's hard. Um, when when my wife and I were out in uh, Arizona for a couple of years, we were in the midst of writing uh, our book Armageddon Now: The End of the World A to Z. And one of the things that we wanted to do was uh, contact some you know, Navajo elders, and. Um, some of the descendants of the uh, of the Anasazi too, probably when we were out there, and we found you know you just can't go out and start asking questions. You have to go out and start listening first. You listen to the stories. You get to know the people. You get to know the elders. Uh, you know, don't get the idea that I'm I'm a white guy coming out here to pump you for all the information right. you got. I mean, you just won't get anywhere. But we've heard stories from out there. That was where I first became aware of the, uh, the Navajo uh, prophecy, for instance, of the fourth world. Um, I had read about it. I had read Waters' book and, and some other people. But to actually get out there and, and, and sit out there and listen to those uh, origin stories and, and hear and then see how much they fit what we know about uh, um, archaeology and anthropology. The idea that the Navajo said that we are in the fourth world, the three previous worlds were destroyed. Uh, I find it fascinating to find that one of the reasons that the third world, for instance, was destroyed by a flood was because uh, the Indian villages, uh, the young people had taken on uh, kind of a, a technology, and nobody shows where it came from, but they were talking about flying shields, where you get on the shield and fly to a, a city that village that was far away and wreak your havoc and steal your stuff and then come back in the flying shield. That sounds awful lot like aliens to me. Mm -hmm. But one of the great, one of the great uh, stories there too is, is the idea of when the, when the earth was destroyed by uh, a great flood, when their world was destroyed by a great flood and they were saved through the help of their, uh, their ancestors and their spirit guides called the, uh, the ant people. Well, the Sumerians and the Babylonians had a similar side, the idea of being destroyed by a great flood. And in the ancient uh, Sumerian legends, the Anunnaki came to help them, some of the Anunnaki. Well, Anunnaki, if you go into the Navajo, Anu is ant and Naki is people or folks. So the Anunnaki, uh, the ant people, saved the Navajos and the Anunnaki save the Samaritans from the Great Flood. Oh, there it is. 
cultures are a whole half a world apart, and yet there they are. There's the story. You know, they have the same story, even the same word, Anunnaki. So it it, it makes you wonder that, that when we came over here, granted it was our technology that and, and, and germs as well that wound up destroying so many of the native populations. And, and the germs from the animals we brought over, yeah. the domesticated yeah. animals. There were, they didn't have domesticated animals here. Yeah. So things like, you know, that, you know, that are inconveniences to us, like avian flu and hoof and, and mouth disease sure. and, uh, you know, mad cow disease, those were fatal. Yeah. Can, can you imagine in, in, in Florida, where I used to live, when the Spanish came over, and, and brought smallpox and diphtheria and chickenpox, measles, everything. All, all of those. And can you imagine within one and a half generations, 90% of your people died of those illnesses? Yeah. 90%. That's unbelievable. It must have seemed like the end of the world. No wonder they just gave up hope. No wonder they just said, forget it. Right. When, when, when the decimation is the survival rate, not, not, the, not the mortality rate. And yeah. I guess if you are the European who believes or is fooling themselves into believing that, that there's something, you know, super special, a, a deity on your side. Well, when, when nine out of 10 people drop dead just because you're near them, um, you know, or even, you know, without you being near them, uh, you probably think that 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 you the plague was cast by your god to to help pave the way for you, but anyway, yeah. we we could probably talk about that forever. I well, I, no, I, I the other, yeah, we, go ahead. We we really can't leave the subject without talking about the Amazon because you know when the first Spanish uh, people made their way down the Amazon, it was a mistake. Uh, you know they they couldn't get back. They, <laughs> so all they could do is keep going, but they they came back and reported these great huge villages and great cities and, and everything else and a uh, hundred years later when uh, their descendants finally descended the Amazon again and made the same trip they did down the same river they did there was nothing but forest nothing but Amazon rainforest and they said wow they must have just made it all up now in these days with LIDAR and the, you know, radar and everything else we're discovering the remains of those forests and what we thought was virgin Amazon rainforest. Turns out it wasn't, and it was all destroyed by one group of Spanish people who came down with the, with the, with the right bugs, everything from uh, smallpox to syphilis and everything else, and uh, a whole civilization was destroyed, and a hundred years later, given the huge uh, amount of growth in the Amazon and how fast it comes, until our generation, we had no idea that a great Amazonian civilization once existed. But now we can see the records of it. There's no doubting it. LIDAR shows the roads. It shows the towns. It shows the, 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 I mean, where, where they were and everything else below the, the carpet of the ring. And we've even got boots on the ground where we're cutting down so much of the Amazon rainforest now to make grazing land for McDonald's and all that kind of stuff that we look at it and, and, and now we're actually finding those, the uh, the remnants, the the skeletons of these great villages and, and, and cities that lived that lived there. Ah, it's a it's it's a terrible thing when when cultures clash, and we clash badly, and we just we, we shouldn't forget that because it's so important, so important. It's true, and I'm um, I'm reading uh, some science fiction books now, and. It, 
it, it, it's if you look deep enough into it, or maybe not that deep, it, it's basically saying it, while th- things are largely from the human perspective, it's it, it, it's sort of showing how like everything but the humans like adapt to each other better than the humans, even though the humans are the narrators and they're uh, you know by by the end of book one they're they're the you know they're the the refugees the the subordinates but uh it's interesting because some some of the other characters are spiders and ants and and octopuses and 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 you know other types of uh creatures that don't have you know earthbound names or or whatever and some some are actually you know ai that, that and all of them are better about adapting and and you know turning your enemy into your friend because you learn that they have certain utilities that they make your society better and you have certain utilities to make their society better. And it, it is sort of a metaphor for, you know, humans not so good about doing these things. But in this book, the context is that humans got better at doing it, but only after, you know, basically becoming the, uh, yeah, pushing themselves to extinction, more or less. Anyway, yep. uh, I may as well say it's the Adrian Tchaikovsky Children of Time story. So if anyone's interested in reading it, go for it. Um, but yeah, so uh, I, I guess since we, we, we you know, the first one we started was with the, the Navajo, or the Diné, then the Anasazi, but let's, st- I guess, start there. Well, um, let's go to the Ojibwe for the fun of it. Okay. Um, I've, I, I had a... A real revelation about how much we have to learn in this modern day and age how much we have to learn from uh, uh, elders of indigenous uh, religious traditions uh, I ever since I was a kid I've read about vision quests and how it was uh, uh, many many tribes especially in the West but here even here in the East they had um, the, the tradition of uh, a boy became a man by going on a vision quest. Nowadays, we just give them a driver's license and say, now, now you're a man, that kind of thing. But back then, no, you had to go off and, and, and really commune. And so for four days, uh, the Indian boy would go out and, and in, into the wilderness and stay there by himself. Now, he was being watched, but he didn't know it. Mm. You know, the elders were watching over him. He didn't know it. But he was basically by himself and he was fasting and uh, generally speaking for four days and usually uh, somewhere in that fourth day uh, he would have a vision uh, we would call it a vision quest usually he would have some kind of a vision that prepared him for manhood prepared him for the rest of his life uh, sometimes an animal would appear to him uh, sometimes the animal was so real maybe it was a real animal and, and you might walk by back from your vision quest carrying an eagle feather and carry it with you for the rest of your life, that kind of thing. If the eagle became your, what they call totem animal, your spirit guide. Well, when I was in the midst of a really bad midlife crisis for a minister, we don't have anything similar in Christianity, like a vision quest to speak of. And we can go on a monastery, we can go on a retreat or something like that, but it's not the same thing. So I wanted to go deeper into myself and find out what was going on. So uh, in the midst of this thing, I took, I took a week off and uh, I had built a cabin back in the woods of uh, Massachusetts. And I went back to this cabin every day for four days. I didn't necessarily fast, but I went back just to be by myself. 
and I would sit on the front porch and I would meditate. And about the second or third day into it, I started hearing these noises, which for a while I thought were highway noises from the highway about a mile and a half away. But then I realized I was hearing these noises in my right ear, not my left ear. My right ear is totally deaf. And I said, oh, this is strange. And so I began to concentrate in it and listen to it. And lo and behold, I discovered that what I was hearing was not highway noises. It was drums. Mm. Now, I've got to say, I built this cabin where I did because it was on a, uh, a, a place that now I understand it. Then I didn't understand enough about earth energy. But, um, it was on a natural divide. All the waters from the west uh, flowed down eventually to Connecticut River and out to Long Island Sound. And all the uh, the uh, waters from the east would flow out to what is now the Quabbin Reservoir in, in Massachusetts. And uh, so it was a natural, and there was a great big huge boulder there. And I used to call it Drew because I figured ancient Druids in New England, so I called it Boulder Drew. Uh, and it was set on this oh, natural stage, so to speak, on three three. Uh, sides of this, a, a tribe could gather and watch a ceremony conducted on the top of this natural flat space, and that's where I built my cabin. But in front of the cabin, there was a, a, a stone about oh, three, four feet tall, and best I can describe it is by, remember the old weebles wobble, but they don't fall down, sure. kind of something like that. Mm -hmm. And on the top of that stone, I could it, it, it looked like it had been carved flat. Um, and uh, I just began to stare at this stone while I was listening to these drums in my head. And all of a sudden, I had—I didn't hear a, a voice or see anything, but I, yeah, my eyes were closed, and I saw a, almost a sentence floating in front of my mind that said, uh, um, "I'd always had an aversion to dancing. I—I uh, was—I played in a dance band. I led a top 40 cover group for a long time. I used to love to watch people dance, but." I couldn't get out and dance myself. I just couldn't do it. I got to a psychiatrist one time, a friend of mine. One night we were having a couple of brews, and I said, uh, why can't I go out and dance? He says, oh, loosen up. Well, it didn't work. <laughs> I thought maybe I could un unravel some of my, my, my psyche or something like that. Well, I was listening to those drums, and I was watching that stone that appeared to be carved, and all of a sudden this sentence just kind of appeared floating in front of my closed eyes. That said, it's not that you can't dance, it's that you won't dance. And I said, what does that mean? And all of a sudden, it occurred to me that at one point on this spot of ground, dance was sacred to a people who lived here, and they danced around this boulder in fulfillment of this uh, ceremony that the rest of the tribe would watch from down below. And it was the most uncanny thing I ever saw. I, I looked at that rock that would, had fallen down about three or four feet tall. And all of a sudden, I knew that that rock was supposed to be standing up. It was supposed to be a standing stone. And uh, I, I went and got a shovel. And the next day, I came back with a hydraulic jack and some ropes and hooked up this thing to stand this thing up. And I excavated about three feet around this rock, a big circle around three feet. And I knew before I got to the bottom what I was going to find. It was a natural outcropping, so the ground itself wasn't more than a foot, foot and a half deep. And uh, I found seven hammer stones, obviously made on purpose. They were a symbolic representation of tools that were spread out in a fan shape toward the east. And a pedestal that exactly fit with three rocks that exactly fit 
this rock that I knew was supposed to be standing up. And uh, so I stood it up with my uh, with my you know jack and ropes and all this kind of stuff. I stood it up, and when I put it in place, the pedestal swung around so this flat face area pointed exactly to where I had already located where the sun rose uh, in the morning of the spring solstice. Well, yeah, it was, you know, hair was standing up the back of my, my thing. And uh, I began to think about the drums and everything else. I called my, my, called my daughter, Jan, who lived uh, in Maryland at the time. She knows a lot about all things Indian. And I told her the story and uh, she called me back about 10 minutes later. Her voice was trembling. And she said, Dad, when you have uh, hear drums like that, it's it's a symbol of, of dance. So watch what happens in, in the future on this. I said, okay. So, well, winter came. And uh, I didn't go out to the cabin much during the winter, except just to go out and go and see what was around. But when the, uh, I decided on, on the night of the, uh, the, the solstice, the winter solstice, threw a little party out at the cabin, built a fire in the fireplace, had some people out. We drank some mead and burned some sage and everything else to try to say thank you to the spirits of the place. And I played my recorder, my Native American flute, and uh, we sang some songs, and that was about it. Well, spring came, and on the night, on the morning of the solstice, I decided to, or the equinox, I decided to uh, walk out there and see what I could find. And lo and behold, the uh, snow had melted away from this particular rock, like it had other natural rocks that were in the area. But right at the base uh, on, of this stone, there was the feathers, not the carcass, just the feathers of a rough grouse. And uh, I was like, whoa, what's, what's that? Well, I picked up the feathers, and my first thought was, well, a hawk killed a grouse on this spot of ground right, right. here. But I thought to myself, why on this spot of ground? And and why a grouse? So I called my doctor, my, my, my daughter again, and she looked it up for me in her in her library, and she said, uh, a grouse is a sign of the dance to get your life in tune with the dance of life. That's what I, that's what I had gone out there to experience in the first place. That's why I had gone on this retreat in the first place, to get my life in tune or dance with, with the dance of life. So it was it was very meaningful. Well, about a year went by, and uh, I had been invited to go to this uh, special occasion where an old mentor of mine, an Ojibwe teaching elder by the name of Doc Wolf, came out to New England from Minnesota a couple of times a year. And he had been commissioned by his tribe since the White Buffalo found they could now reveal some things that they could never reveal stories. So we spent a whole day sitting on the ground listening to the drums, listening to him tell part of the story. He couldn't tell the whole story because it wasn't an Indian audience. It was a white audience. He wasn't allowed. But he could tell a, a, a good part of his uh, origin story of the Ojibwe people. And I found a lot of connections as I listened to them. But I was thinking all the same time, man, I can't wait till this is over because as soon as it's done, I'm going to go out and tell my story about the grouse and, and the rock and the grouse feathers and all this kind of stuff. So... The day was just about over. The sun was starting to set. We were all going up and thanking him. And I said, look, well, I, I got to tell you this story. And as I told him this story, he looked bored. And I'm saying, what made me look bored? This was the, a vision quest. This was my vision. He said, okay, yeah, you're right, Jim. I'm, I'm sorry. So you found the feathers on the west side of the rock. What happened? 
And I said, wait a minute, I, I didn't tell you they were on the west side of the rock. How'd you know that? He said, well, that's where I would expect them to be. When our people have a vision quest like this, and if this kind of thing happened, then I would expect the rocks because that's the that's where the uh, the uh, spirit departs when when people die, and that was probably what was going on. And he was kind of just matter of fact. I said, "You mean this has happened to other people?" And he said, "Oh come on." He said, "Why is it that you got you Christians always think that when you pray to your God and He answers you, but you're surprised?" When you pray to God and our God answers you <laughs> with, with a result of your vision quest. And I said, you mean I've been looking for an experience with God my whole life and now I find out he's an Indian? And he looked at me with this cherubic expression and said, no, she's an Indian. <laughs> and it really, it was just a, a classic example of me. I'm a minister for heaven's sake. Um, you know, I, I, I would expect... Um, I'm supposed to expect when I pray to God to get an answer. That's what we preach and all this kind of stuff. doesn't happen often, but that's what we preach. And now I discover that here at a time of my life when I needed to pray and I needed to, uh, to really hear an answer, the answer came and I did get my life in tune with the dance of life. And I began to change completely in my spirituality from that, that, that's one of the things that marks the huge difference in my life when I changed from moving from Christianity, from religion to spirituality. That's one of the most significant days of my life. But it had to come to me through uh, an Indian tradition translated by an Ojibwe uh, teaching elder uh, into my response in order for me to understand what had happened. So I think it's, it's a huge mistake for us European whites, and we all do it, even I do it sometimes, I don't mean to, I hate to, when I discover I've done it, I hate myself for it, but to just simply say, oh, these were primitive people here, and they didn't have deep spirituality like we do, you know, because they didn't have big cathedrals and big buildings and everything else, but no, they had sacred mountaintops, and they had caves, and uh, they had uh, groves of woods, and and they had deserts, and they had all the... These were the cathedrals of these people. And their spirituality can teach us so much. But in this day and age, boy, take it take it from one who has tried and tried. Man, you really got to work <laughs> to, to get out and break away from modern culture. It is hard. And I live here in the woods, and I go back and forth between uh, uh, being way up and way down and uh, all this kind of stuff. But... I know the answers are here, it's just that we have to learn how to identify with them. And that's hard because we have basically destroyed the spirituality that I think might lead to our salvation. Well, so just to go back a little bit, the Ojibwe, as I understand it, are people that live sort of in uh, the north central part of the United States yeah, into they, what is now Minnesota, Canada. Minnesota, Wisconsin, around there. Yeah. And into maybe maybe over the Arctic Circle as well. I mean, the, the the term Eskimo is a French word. There's there's not a single people in the world who call themselves Eskimos. But for the lack of simplicity, you know, uh, yeah. uh, a lot of the audience might think of them as as one of the many many Eskimo tribes. Which again is the is, well, is, yeah. You can, it, you can when you think of the Ojibwe now, at least, uh, you know, of course they migrated like many tribes did. But, uh, you, you think of the Great Lakes and uh, 
especially Lake Superior and west of Lake Michigan, everything else, you're, you're talking about Ojibwe territory. There's a, it's a tremendous culture, tremendously um, deep, rich, spiritual culture. And, the, and because of the white buffalo, they could tell their story now. So I guess first I have to ask, what's the white buffalo? Oh, the elders, uh, the Ojibwe elders would never share the secrets of their spirituality, their, their religious traditions with whites. They just didn't do it. And there had been a prophecy for a long time ago that when the white buffalo was born, it would mark a change. And uh, everybody was wondering what that change was going to be. And uh, as a result, when a white buffalo was born out in Minnesota, the elders got together and they decided that it was a sign that they could begin to share some of their spirituality, uh, some of their stories with the whites for the first time, if the whites were respectful. And uh, they elected certain teaching elders who were able to go out and do this kind of like we call it missionaries in Christianity. And they still weren't allowed to tell the whole story. The, the, uh, the, the whole Ojibwe origin myth takes four days to tell. <laughs> we only had one day, so we only heard part of it. But the white buffalo signified the beginnings of of this of being able to share, which was especially interesting because uh, my daughter Jen lives right next door to us in the woods, and we're very close to the animal. We feed the deer every day and uh, everything else. We just had a, a white squirrel show up, and we began to wonder, oh, what does this mean? Uh, an albino squirrel, a white squirrel, maybe this is a sign of something. I don't know. Uh, I, I never thought about it until this very minute, but I've never told this story of the white buffalo on air before. And now that the white squirrel has shown up, I find myself telling the story. <laughs> we always see the squirrel as a kind of a symbol of uh, the ambitious undertakings and busyness and everything else that we, uh, we have to make sure to incorporate into our lives without getting carried away by them. So what, what are the, uh, are we able to give some ideas to what the basics of their uh, origin story is, their creation story? Yeah, I can't tell it properly because to do it properly, you have to have a drum and you have to be a trained uh, teaching elder. But um, you know, ba basically, they they talk about the four foots and the two foots and the winged creatures. And these were all children of God. Uh, humans were just in that same category. And uh, of course, the Ojibwe followed very carefully the idea of we live on Turtle Island, uh, the idea that the United States is the back of a turtle uh, that was when the world destroyed by a flood this turtle was and, and the, the diving creatures went down to the bottom and they brought up mud and everything else and it, it was a, a quite a different story which in terms of if if you just listen to and go by it, it fits very much with a lot of archaeological tradition uh, you know when they talk about turtle island and being the place here where we're on the back of this turtle, it's floating in the sea and everything else. How could Ojibwe's from the middle part of the country, how could they understand the Pacific and the Atlantic when they hadn't been to it? But their trade networks went that far. We know they had trails and, and things like that. So they were very much in, 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 in touch with the idea that the United States is an island. And uh, the Great Lakes, oh, what tremendous amount of stories around the Great Lakes. Uh, everybody from Hiawatha and uh, the big lake they called Gichigumi, you know, uh, and the and the when the 
gales in November come early. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Superior never gives up her dead and all that. Kind yeah, of you could, you're going with Gordon Lightfoot here, the yeah, Edmund Fitzgerald. But they were all, all Indian legends. Yes. It's funny because uh, when I spoke to the Strongs, again, hopefully people, you'll have either already heard that show or you'll hear it next week. Um, they, they mentioned, I asked about the turtle and they said, yes, that that's part of uh, in Aboriginal, original people's culture. It's, that's, that's part of the female dreaming is of the, the turtle, that the earth is on the, on, on the back of a turtle. And then when you think about mud, I mean, I mean, there's so many things with mud from the golem to that, you know, that humans were created from sand, including Adam uh, or, or driftwood, which, uh, you know, is, uh, Elbe and, and then Elma in Norse and, uh, you know, Enkidu was made in the, in the, uh, Sumerian tales, but you also think of Tartaria, um, but you can also think about it from, you know, people who are writing a lot about the cataclysms, you know, and, and that they were, they might have been comet falls or, or other reasons for the heating that caused the mass and like, so this is the southern end of a ice age, which caused floods, which at some point would also cause, you know, earthquakes and tsunamis. But as you get inland, a lot of that would feel like mud tsunamis um and you get a lot of things covered by mud so it, it does sort of fit in with uh, a, a lot of things and i was also uh, I, I was listening to uh, some science podcasts recently this week as i do every week and they were all you know the, i guess the discovery of the week is that um around the time of the great cataclysm around the time of the great megafauna extinctions there were also severe wildfires they found a la- layer of charcoal um, you know, which is consistent with volcanoes and whatever, but because it's so, uh, I think this was in the La Brea tar pit. So I guess I'll have mm-hmm. to, you know, cross-reference it with other parts of the world as well yeah. to, you know, but, uh, I mean, wildfires are certainly, uh, not inconsistent yeah. with cometary fallings, you know, and, and, and great yeah, right. that, volcanism. That, that, that black map that you were talking about, that layer of, uh, of charcoal, basically, um, it covered, uh, it not only took out the megafauna, it took out probably the Clovis culture as well, because every single Clovis site that uh, people have uh, excavated finds that layer of black charcoal. Right down south of us, uh, there's a topper site uh, uh, where, uh, while digging down there, they found the Clovis layer and decided to go deeper and even risk their reputations because, especially back in those days, if you weren't a Clovis first guy, you were kicked out of the club, you know, in terms of archaeology. You couldn't get any money, you couldn't get a teaching job or anything. So he decided to go down deeper, and he did. And he went through that black layer of, uh, uh, of, of what you call the black mat. You find it here and right down south of me. Uh, you find it over in, in out in the Midwest. You find it out west. Uh, you find it in Europe, all over the place. And it was just an example of the the fires that burned mm. for such a long time. And uh, of course, that kind of heat melted a lot of glacier water. So there was a lot of flooding at the same time. And uh, it, it's, it's just a, you know, it's an amazing thing. It really fits. And if the Clovis people were here when that comet hit 10,800 years ago or whatever, um, then if they were here, then there were people to remember. And there were people who probably survived it to tell their stories, who told their stories, who told their stories. And now generations later, my feeling is we got to listen to these people. 
they're re they're remembering stories. Now, granted, the stories may have been uh, blown up and or changed or something over the generations, over ten thousands of years, but still, there's a kernel of truth at the bottom of them. I think. Oh yeah, we we we, stories. we remember them now in 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 the Bible in in sure. in the. Was it the Inu in Leo, uh, you know, in, in the Vedic, uh, you know, yep. sorry, in Ragnarok, in Revelations, in, in the Titanocomy? I mean, <laughs> you know, they're, they're all wars of the stars with great, with great firebirds or whatever. I mean, you know, uh, unless you think they were literal and, you know, I, I, you know, perhaps they were, but, you know, it's also consistent with, with you know, how, how do you preserve the memory, sure. I mean, you know, you know, a lot of great literature in the past was was oral tradition and was poetry because it was easier to remember. Like, you know, like, uh, you know, we all have friends who who know the lyrics of almost every song, you know, and 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 and, and that it's no different then. And that's how you remember the stories. Now it's been exactly. so many millennium that now they're stories. They're not they're not warnings or histories or or, or whatever the case is. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's as good a theory for what these things are. And they, they're all sort of, you know, you know, the, you know, the sinking of Atlanta, they're, they're all sort of from like, uh, you know, 11,000 to 12,000 years ago. Sure, and I'm, sure. I'm sure those Clovis people and the peoples who were before, they probably have a similar story from 10,000 years earlier or, or, you know, or something that, that, yeah. that they remembered as their cataclysm. And this is probably where we get these, you know, these different cycles of man. And like you said, the, the, the Anasazi, the Hopi, they, they, they talked about the, we're in the fourth cycle. I, I know the, the Mayans had that. I know the Greek had the, 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 the five ages of man. I mean, it, yeah. it, there, there's so many cultures that have ages of man. Um, India, Indians as in India have, have the same sort of thing. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah, I, I get a kick out of it. Uh, um, you know, a lot of people who never read history know exactly what happened to the Edmund Fitzgerald because of Gordon Lightfoot doing it in a song. Right. And they know the song. The same thing with um, George O'Brien ran for office in uh, uh, in Boston, and nobody would remember him if it had not been for the song, you know, Charlie and the MTA. You know, they all know <laughs> that song. Vote for George O'Brien, get Charlie off the MTA. Uh, songs are how we remember things, and it's, it's all very... That's how it's passed down. Uh, hymns. A lot of people know more theology, not for reading the Bible, but from singing hymns. Sure. Um, a, a lot of people don't think that they believe in aliens until Christmas comes along and they sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. And what's that song about? It's about angelic beings. It's about spirit beings stepping out of another dimension, coming into our a reality and creating vibration, which we know is music. Uh, they're singing about aliens, for heaven's sake. They just call them angels, that's all. But it's the songs that keep these things alive. And it's the songs that have been sung around campfires for thousands upon thousands of years that I think keep the story, the real history of what happened in the world alive. If we can just keep our minds open, listen to it, understand that, yeah, it can be changed or altered a little bit here or there. But at the root of it all, there's a, there's a real kernel of truth that's, I think, extremely important. And I think that's why Native American spirituality is so important to study. The more I study, the more I realize I don't learn. Um, I'm, I'm terribly frustrated sometimes when I talk to some uh, uh, indigenous elders, friends of mine, who get exasperated with me 
because I'm, I'm always trying to translate everything into my left brain, you know, and all this kind of stuff. The greatest, greatest uh, storyteller I ever heard used to begin every story by saying, it may not have happened like this, but it's a true story just the same. Right. Very important. Well, you're one of the greatest storytellers I know, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's time to tell some stories. So let, let's get into the, the meat of the meat and, and, let, and, and let's get some, you know, origin creation stories. And, uh, you know, again, I don't care where you start or whatever, because I don't, I don't know where to direct it, but, uh, you know, some creation stories. And if there are some amalgams, you know, we, uh, whatever. Wherever you want to go, or we're in your hands. Well, I, I don't know. It's so big. Um, you could start with the I'll, people who bo- who build basically a, a Tower of Babel, or the or the people who do a Passover seder. Seemingly, I mean, those, those well, are those all, are some, those are some yeah, fun that's ones. All, that's all the old all the Old Testament. What the books of what the Book of Genesis is really about is is an origin story. Um, yeah, you know, and it's about our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And they are one with nature. They're one with God. God walks and talks with them in the cool of the evening. They're one with each other. They're one with their environment. They can eat of any tree in the garden except for the one tree. And uh, when when they do eat, eat of the one tree, uh, the fruit of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, well, the knowledge of good and evil speaks to duality. That's the world we live in. We live in duality. We live in a dual world, up and down, right? Good and evil. And so when human beings first became aware of the duality, that they had a choice, that they could choose good, but they could also choose evil, um, that set us down the path that we're in right now. Uh, the same kind of story is told so often in the Navajo, for instance, who had the hero twins. Uh, and their country is bounded by four great mountains uh, in the, uh, the Four Corners region. And the hero twins are engaged in all these fantastic uh, things, just like uh, Cain and Abel. Uh, and the hero twins sometimes can fight with each other. Cain and Abel can fight with each other. You find that story a lot. Uh, you find the same idea of uh, after we discover we've lived in a world of duality of good and evil, then all of a sudden uh, temptations arise and problems arise. Cain, for instance, is jealous. Uh, Cain is a tiller of the soil. He's a farmer, and he's jealous of his brother Abel, who is a herder of sheep. And uh, he's a hunter-gatherer, basically, or a shepherd who wanders from place to place, migratory. And... uh, Cain is jealous of it. We're not told why. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, didn't accept Cain. So Cain goes out and kills Abel. Well, that happened in history. We call it the agricultural revolution. When people began to grow crops and everything else in Sumeria and Babylon and around that area in Egypt. And even here in the United States uh, or down in, in, in Mexico, Peru, when that began to happen, as soon as people began to be farmers, they all of a sudden resented the people who had just come in with the herds. Uh, if you want to go see the, the musical, Oklahoma, the shepherd or the farmer and the fi- and, and the cowboy must be friends, you know. Yeah. Uh, they're fighting with each other and all this kind of stuff. It's a story as old as the human race. And uh, so Cain, what's the first thing Cain does? He, 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 after, <coughs> excuse me, 
after uh, killing his brother, after killing off the herder way of life, he builds a city. Well, that's exactly what happened. It happened in Mesopotamia. It happened in Egypt. It happened in Central America and in Mexico. Uh, as soon as we settle down, we begin to build cities. Go up to Turkey and you see the same thing. Go back to Tempe, Karan Tempe. Um, we began to be city dwellers, and cities led to all kinds of problems. You got a city, all of a sudden, uh, you've got people with specialized lifestyles. Now you're dependent on somebody else. Uh, you can't really live your life by yourself. You got to. You're, you're dependent on somebody who's going to do it for you, just like we are today. Right. I was thinking the other day. Uh, I don't know how a cell phone works. I mean, I can push the buttons, but who knows how a cell phone works? Nobody knows. I'm dependent on somebody I've never met to keep the electricity grid going or to keep the satellite up there or whatever else. Uh, my refrigerator goes out. I got to have somebody come and fix it. I can't fix a refrigerator. Now, all of a sudden, we're dependent on that. And as soon as that happens, you have something to protect. And once you have something to protect where you say, this is mine, my land, my house, my refrigerator, mine, mine, mine. As soon as you have something to protect, you got the beginnings of war because somebody else wants it. So you go to war. That's the story of the human race. And in order to, I mean, for a history book, to be honest, all it has to do is go back to the indigenous story. It's the Navajo, the Arapaho, uh, not so much the Cherokee because they're, they're in a whole different territory. They may... Many of the Cherokee around my neck of the woods think of themselves as Jewish. They think they're one of the last ten tribes or twelve tribes of Israel, ten tribes of Israel. And uh, but on and on, you find you find all this wisdom that's in these origin stories. And the Sumerians are no different, and the Babylonians and the Jews uh, had their own creation stories. The only difference is that we've taken one creation story, the one from Genesis, and we baptized it and said, "This is the one that's the true one." Well, not necessarily. If you had an infrastructure as big as the Christian church built on the Navajo legends uh, and myths, you would have just as many people saying, this is the way it is. I find it extremely interesting that for years, all the DNA research and everything else, we have been absolutely convinced that humans originated in Africa. It's called the out of Africa theory, the African Eve and everything else. And now, in the last couple of weeks, uh, the whole field of anthropology is being turned upside down by saying it could be that some of our ancestors, uh, the antecedent species to Homo sapiens, actually arose perhaps in Turkey. There's other people say perhaps they arose in Europe, in Greece. And now we've even got some people saying perhaps uh, Homo sapiens evolved here in America. Wow. I mean, that changes everything around. And a lot of these ancient Indian stories said, we have always been here. If it ever turns out that uh, Homo sapiens could have evolved from uh, indigenous species here in America, if that ever happens, the Indians are going to be perfectly capable of, and perfectly correct to sit back and say, told you so, <laughs> we've always been here. Well, even if it's... So these, are, these are important stories. Even if it was... Eurasia or, or Asia or Siberia, it's still the same story because that's where we believe anywhere where the, the First Nations people of you know now North America and South America came from is from sort of 
Central Asia, Siberia, Japan, China, and, and so it it would still be the same style. It's just it's just the, the the here moved, but the Earth is still the same Earth. It's still it's, it depends on how you know limited you are in the here. But anyway, nobody wants to hear from me today, including me. So yeah, so. Uh, so what are some of the, what you said the Cherokee are in a world by themselves. I don't, let's start with the world that's not by themselves. Let's, let's talk about some of the uh, larger creation stories from some, you know, I guess tribes that, you know, are sort of household names. And then let's move into the Cherokee because that sounds really fun. Well, um, we can kind of quit because <clears throat> frankly, I'm losing my voice <laughs> after an hour. It's starting to go on me. Um, but I, I'm almost out of water, but yeah, the, um, um, probably some of the most ancient stories we can look at from here are, are the Indians of the Southwest. Um, there are tribes that nobody ever hears of that California tribes, for instance, or in the deserts, uh, in the four corners country, especially there is a, a, a tremendous story about people arising uh, out of the earth, uh, the hero twins help make them. And, um, people come ar arising out of the earth in the four corners country and then making their way south. And they were, uh, they had to follow a vision. And the vision said to the people, continue south as a nation, continue south, uh, migrating south, until you come to a place where you find an eagle fighting a serpent. And that's going to be your home. Uh, and the name, this culture uh, originated, like I say, in the Four Corners region of the Southwest, and uh, in tradition is called Aslan. And so the people did this and over the course of years. They migrated south and south until they came to an island uh, down in what is now Mexico City. And there they found an eagle uh, involved in a war with a rattlesnake. And you can still see the eagle and the rattlesnake on the flag of Mexico today. Right. But they were told that that's where you were supposed to settle down. And the people were called uh, Aztecs. Uh, we call them that. We don't know what they call themselves. But they had all kinds of legends about the home country. And so when eventually the conquistadors came in and began to put them under such tremendous persecution, the people decided to go back to the home country. And they went with an awful lot of their riches with them. And they migrated back to where they knew was the home country. And right now there are tremendous treasure hunts going on in, in Utah and in, in Colorado, looking for the Aztec treasures that were buried there. Uh, I'm writing a book right now for Invisible uh, 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 Ink Press about uh, cursed treasure, lost treasures. And uh, one of the stories is about how in Utah, about the Aztecs buried it, the Utes, uh, defended it, the Mormons looted it, and uh, still people say it's still there. You know, mm. and, and so they went back, and and the the stories had continued for so long that even after thousands upon thousands of years after the original migration, the people still knew the story, and they knew where to go when it came time to go home. Uh, they knew where their homeland was, unlike. Us, you know, we talk about Eden, but nobody knows where Eden is. We have kind of a general idea. They remembered, uh, and and so they went back. Now, these kinds of stories of people rising from the land itself and being formed by either mythical figures or some people would say alien figures or whatever uh, seem to have a common a common 
thread in that there was some kind of a species here first that was not human and then the spirits or the heroes of old or the ancient ones or the aliens or somebody somehow manipulated the they didn't say manipulated the dna but that's how we would put it manipulated the dna to make these people who were not to make the species who was not human to all of a sudden make them human and they had to go through all kinds of things usually fires floods and everything else but it's just an example of being able to keep keep the story clean and keep the story with you and, and remember it so that when the time comes and you have to flee you know where to go home you know where you came from most of us don't have that idea today we really don't so we're not fortunate enough to be that way. there are other we talked about the cherokee there are other things that the, the cherokees some especially in north carolina uh there is a whole uh chapter of uh of cherokee up there who um managed to somehow missed the Trail of Tears and one of the most infamous presidents in the world, Eddie Jackson, and his Trail of Tears. And they somehow managed to escape to the hills and come back. And sometimes they had to go back all the way to Oklahoma on the Trail of Tears and then come back. But they had the story that their people originally uh, didn't originate from this land, but they came from over the Atlantic. And they believed that they were uh, descendants of the 10 tribes of Israel who disappeared after the, uh, the fall of uh, the, the Assyrians uh, came and, and captured the ten tribes of Israel and that they came over here and that they believe they actually have Jewish heritage. Uh, DNA hasn't really proved it out, but their their folk tradition is, is really strong and some of their language is the same as ancient Hebrew. So wow. uh, it's it's a it's 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 interesting. There's just as many different origin stories as there are uh, as there are tribes. Usually there's uh, some kind of an idea about the, oh, Joe Campbell used to talk about the fire theft, for instance, about how primitive humans were just about ready to die until somebody uh, in their ancestry stole fire from the gods. And then there was Joseph Campbell's famous words, that was usually a relay race, you know, where Robin carried it for a while and uh, carried fire and burned his breast red, you know, and then gave it to somebody else, who, that's where the plumage comes from and everything else. But there's all, a lot of these stories, and a lot of stories have the idea of being helped by the animals. Um, when there was a flood, a, 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 a Indians around Michigan, for instance, had the idea of this great flood that happened, and uh, the people were on an island, and they didn't know what was going to happen, and uh, different animals dove to the bottom to try to find mud so they could bring it up and make land for the people, uh, beaver or muskrat or something like that. Um, there was a close connection with uh, animals, uh, which is much richer, I think, than some of our Christian stories. We, we always had the idea of being separate from the animals. We named the animals. You know, we, we were the ones that are, was being charged. The Indian sensibilities weren't, weren't that way. They, they believed that they were dependent on the animals, not, not um, victors over them and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I think the most prominent animals in the Bible are donkeys. Yeah, yeah. Occasional sure. elephant or camel, but mostly donkeys. Yeah, and goats, yeah. goats I, also. I love the I love the Indian uh, uh, India Indian uh, story about uh, the old Indian sage was asked, uh, you know, what is the world? He said, the world sits on the back of a turtle. And they said, well, what's the turtle standing on? Uh, the turtle is standing on the back of an elephant. He 
says, well, what's the elephant standing on? And the Indian thought for it and said, oh, it's elephants all the way down here. <laughs> well, there, there are lots of different kinds of elephants that are no longer walking this earth that were here, right. you know, 10, 20,000 years ago. That's right. That's right. Including dwarf elephants and uh, dwarf elephants and dwarf hippopotami. I mean, it's... it's, it's yeah, mastodon and, and, and uh, mammoth, of course, and everything else. It's, it's, and we know that humans lived here right where I am. Mastodons probably walked over this area because we've found south of here in Florida and north of here uh, as well. We found uh, mastodon bones with Clovis points embedded in them. You know, uh, so it's, 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 it's a, it's a fascinating story, and I just love it. Yeah, and. <laughs> And in a quick and probably way overly simplistic definition of, of Clovis, Clo- Clovis was a place in New Mexico where they found the, these points. Yeah, and, and Yeah, that, they, it's, it's called the Clovis Point, probably one of the most beautiful stone points ever made. It was a spear point. And they called it Clovis because it was found within uh, the body or in, in, the same, in, in, in situ, as they say in archaeology, with the uh, uh, carcass of a, of a mammoth. And obviously, or a mastodon rather, and obviously the mastodon was hunted by people who used this particular weapon, so they used it Clovis. But they found Clovis points all across the United States. Right. As a matter of fact, this creates a problem because most Clovis points, most Clovis areas are found within 100 miles of Washington, D.C. Um, and if people came over a land bridge from Siberia, and just ancient Siberians had a totally different way of manufacturing, a totally different technology, uh, they didn't make single points as much as they use these grooved bones embedded with little micro uh, kind of like serrated edges that kind of thing but the people who did uh, make uh, points like the Clovis are found not in Siberia but they're found in France and Spain uh, the Salutrian people which makes you wonder if Salutrian people made the the predecessor of the Clovis point and if Salutria is in France and Spain and they came out actually over by boat following the base of the glacier over here, it makes you wonder who were the first people in the United States. Perhaps they were not coming over from Siberia. Perhaps they came from France and Spain with that totally different culture. Yeah. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful book uh, written. Uh, oh, I can't think of his name offhand. Uh, oh, I've got it right over here on my shelf too, but I, I won't go look for it right now. But he is the head of the Smithsonian. And, uh, you know, when the head of the Smithsonian starts talking about people coming over here, uh, it's called Across Atlantic Ice. Mm. And uh, if, uh, if people who are with that kind of caliber, scientific caliber and, and, and level, start talking about Salutrians coming over here from France and Spain, uh, we better listen. He knows what he's talking about. Yep, you never know. And then there's... a. Uh, probably just as much likelihood that there's people that came from multiple directions. There's uh, I know mm. that there's linguistic and, and, and uh, oh, I think so. DNA. I think so. I, a lot of, I think came down the California coast way before the glaciers. Matter of fact, there's a, a controversial find out in California that said perhaps people were out in the channel islands off, off California a hundred thousand years ago, 130,000 years ago. Yeah. They find similarities with, uh, I forget what they use. Basically, Australian Polynesian is there's some there's some hyphenation or abbreviation yeah. for it, and you know, and yeah. then there's there's linguistic yeah. similarities in the west coast of South America with with right. Japanese, right. <laughs> and it's it's and, and, yeah. and the important thing to remember is if people were here that long, and people were in one place that long, 
there was a tremendous amount of time to develop a real mythological spirituality. Yeah. And I think these people did. Absolutely. All right. Well, I, you know, I, I think we're at our, our, our mark. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe uh, we will uh, do this as sort of like a continuing, continuing series where we fine tune on like, you know, particular uh, tribes or, or groups of tribes that have a similar story and, and yeah. so, and fine tune on those to make it an easier topic because it's far too global. I get, you know, I, I sort of, knew that was a likelihood going in, but I, I totally see it now with wide eyes. Um, and, but I thank you so much. I know that you're working on a new book. You already said to work on the, 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 uh, hun- the cursed hidden treasures, uh, of which some yeah, might be. I've, yeah. I've also, I, I just finished up a book uh, that I sent into the publisher a couple of months ago. Uh, that's in editing right now It'll come out. I don't think it's probably going to come out this fall, but at least by the spring on uh, near death experiences. And, uh, of course, the book that I'm really uh, pushing right now is kind of an autobiography. Uh, it's a historical book in, in the sense that it's called Cosmo and Me, uh, A Seeker's Journey from Religion to Spirituality. And I'm kind of pushing it because it's, it's not just a biography, although it is the story of my life done decade by decade, because I, I've been kind of a spiritual seeker my whole life looking for the other and uh, over the last seven decades of american history each decade has required a different kind of approach to spirituality um you know the 50s were different than the 60s totally and the 60s different than the 90s and all this kind of stuff so it takes us through american history 10 years at a time uh, with the particular focus of what it took to try to seek what I call the holy grail uh, of spirituality and uh, Cosmo and me uh, hope people will like it. Well, you have to find the holy grail for there to be a proper ending. That's, that's the problem with it. So, right. yeah, well, you know, the book that I was trying to push last time was the, uh, you know, follow the, all the legends that go with the uh, offspring of the, the famous first families of what, what happened to the families of, uh, Cain and all the legends that sprung from that and, and all of the different uh, children of uh, and grandchildren of Noah and what, what came of them and, you know, and, and poor old Jacob and Esau and all of that good stuff. And, and uh, sort of what, what, what those different legends and stories have sprung because they all, they all spring mythologies, you know, or Gnosticisms of their own um, mm-hmm. theosophies, whatever, whatever word you want to put on it. Or, you know, in my interest, I, I would love for you to do a book on the origin stories of various uh, First Nations. Yeah, I would, that, would, yeah. that would be fun, too. But uh, listen, I'm, I'm going to keep you alive until you're 115 writing books. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Assuming I live that long, which uh, is... Well, well, thank you, Jeff. It, it, it's been great being with you. Once again, I'd love to find out who's listening. And uh, I have a website, uh, jimwillis.net. And it has a contact page. The website not only talks about me and all the books I've written and has links so you can look at all of them if you want and reviews and all that kind of stuff, but it has a contact page. And I love to hear from people. So if anybody wants to contact me, it's just jimwillis.net. Go to the contact page. I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. The the man's a pro. He knows how to do his own outro without even a cue. And (laughs) I'll just so... Yeah, you can. Uh, I, I should say this more. You can follow me on Twitter at IcarusFellMD, but you have to put up with a lot of wrestling nonsense, um, and it is nonsense. Uh, 
and then of course, you know, Garden of Doom has a Facebook page, not a group, but a page. And uh, like to hope that you like the show and that you give it a like, a subscribe, a download, uh, and, and, and five stars and a nice little review. But more importantly than any of that, to refer to a friend that you think might be interested because there's something for everything on the Garden shows. I thank you all for listening. I thank our guest, and you will certainly hear from us next time in the Garden of Doom. Take a moment to remember now. There is nothing, nothing to fear. Take a moment to surrender how. And we see it, see it so clear that the vision of the new earth rise. Here is singing, bringing you here. Bringing you here. Let the drum beat, drum beat on. We are free, we are true in our love. Let the drum beat, drum beat strong. Like a heartbeat, Gaia, our mother earth. We are birthed in the fire, in the flames of this life. Flames of this life. Spirits of the land, open up my heart, help me understand. We're listening to the spirits of the land, ancient ones of the sacred strands. They're whispering, the spirits of the land, sing their song. Oh, we on our way, oh, we on our way, oh. I hear them whispering, the spirits of the land, open up our hearts, help us understand. We're listening to the spirits of the land, ancient ones of the sacred strands. They're whispering, the spirits of the land, sing their song. Oh, Thank you.